One of the great villains in the history of England was a king named John. John was a tyrannical king. He was an incompetent king. He's best remembered probably to most of us uh, in modern times through the legendary stories of Robin Hood. King John lived and he reigned in the 13th century. He was a king during the time of the Crusades. In fact, his brother, uh, Richard the Lionheart, was one of the great uh, crusader uh, kings. But uh, John was not cut from the same cloth as his brother. His reign was marked by a series of military defeats that cost England much of her territory in France and that uh, really strained uh, John's relationship with the English nobles. In order to fund his failing military exploits, John levied burdensome taxes on the people of England, and he ruled over them with an iron fist. But eventually, the English barons were pushed to the limits of their patience, and with another defeat in France and no money left to foot the bill, the humiliated King John was forced to the bargaining table. Now, it was at this point in history, it was the year 1215, that the English barons presented King John with one of the most influential documents in Western history. Does anyone know what it is? The Magna Carta, the Great Charter. And it's in its original form, they, written in 1215, Magna Carta contains 69 clauses placing limitations on the king's power, upholding important civil liberties, making it very clear that the king of England was not above the laws of the land. And so Magna Carta placed an important check on political tyranny in England, and it paved the way for the creation of the English Parliament. And for more constitutional reforms, these were societal changes in the Middle Ages that were still reaping the benefit of these changes even in our own time. Well, the pride of King John was curtailed by the English nobility, but John was not the last king in England who would try to overstep the bounds of his God-given sphere. Later on in the 17th century, Charles Stuart, King Charles I, begins to manifest similar tendencies in the way that he governs England, and he begins to treat the English parliament with outright contempt. Like King John of the 13th century, King Charles of the 17th century believed that he was above the law. He believed that his voice was the voice of the law. It was a doctrine that was known as the divine right of kings. And if you know English history, you'll know the outcome of Charles' tyranny was a time of bloody civil war. And ultimately, uh, Charles lost that war. The king's army suffered defeat at the hands of a man named Oliver Cromwell, parliamentarian and a Puritan who was at the helm of the new model army, the parliamentary army. And they defeated the royalist army, they defeated King Charles, but unrepentant, Charles was eventually beheaded by the English parliament. He was put to death by the English parliament. For a time, England was transformed into a constitutional republic, And Oliver Cromwell was at the head of government as the Lord Protector. England did not have a king for a period of time. I don't know how many of you know that, but it was a republic for a short period of time. But in time, the English Republic began to weaken, and following Cromwell's death, the Stuart dynasty was restored to power. Charles II, the son of the beheaded king, he was put back on England's throne, and he continued exactly where his father left off. Yet another tyrant, he thought he was above the law, he unleashes 
a terrible time of persecution upon the dissenting church in England and the faithful Puritan pastors. This was a time of John Bunyan. And Bunyan was thrown into prison. Now mercifully, in the providence of God, the Dutch came to the rescue. The Dutch came to the rescue of England. The year 1689, William of Orange became England's king in what is known as the Glorious Revolution. And this was a new era in English history in which the powers of the crown were finally kept in check. During the time of King John, Magna Carta was a potent rebuke to the king's tyranny. During the time of Charles II, a daring young Scottish pastor named Samuel Rutherford wrote another important document called Lex Rex. And during the COVID lockdowns, we had uh, lots of time. I bought a copy of Lex Rex and began to uh, work my way through it. And I didn't read the whole thing, but I read uh, most of of Lex Rex, and I'm still uh, reading through the end of it. Lex Rex is a Latin phrase, and it's a very important Latin phrase. It's a Latin phrase that means the law is king. The law is king. In other words, the kings and magistrates are subject to the rule of law. They are not at liberty to do as they please. And in this remarkable book called Lex Rex, Pastor Rutherford appeals to the Bible. He makes his argument from the book of Deuteronomy. He makes his argument from the Old Testament books of Samuel and Kings to show that earthly kings have limited power under the law of God. That kings govern by consent of the people. That kings can be resisted when they step outside their God-ordained sphere and begin to engage in tyranny. And as you can imagine, Lex Rex was a literary bombshell in its own day and it got this uh, pastor in a great deal of hot water. In fact, uh, Samuel Rutherford was charged with treason because he dared to challenge the tyranny of this king. But in the providence of God, and uh, probably the mercy of God, uh, Pastor Rutherford died before they could bring him to trial. Pastor Rutherford did not live to see the end of tyranny in England, but thankfully, thankfully his biblical arguments did not fall to the ground. A philosopher named John Locke picked up on Lex Rex popularized and secularized some of the arguments. The legacy of Magna Carta and of Lex Rex live on today primarily in the Constitution of the United States of America and in America's influence upon other modern nations, including this nation. It was these ideas, many of them firmly rooted in the Old Testament law that gave birth to the American Republic, that helped to bring limited government to a reality, and it led to some of the greatest and freest nations that the world has ever known. Now here at Rosedale, we are about to embark on a new journey together. We're going to be, probably over the next year or so, studying the books of First and Second Kings. And how many of you have heard a sermon series on the books of First and Second Kings? This is not uh, the most popular part of the Bible uh, to preach on. These are actually some of my favorite books in the Bible. When I was uh, a teenager, I always loved to read the book of Judges, uh, Samuel, and First and Second Kings. So this is, for me, these are some of my favorite stories from the Bible. But this morning, my goal is to frame, to set the scene for this new series with a biblical vision of kingship. We want to look this morning at God's design for civil authority as revealed in His Word and law. And so in honor of 
Pastor Rutherford, I've entitled the sermon this morning, Lex Rex, The Law is King. And we're going to look at two different texts this morning from the Old Testament. We're going to look at one text in the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy, where the biblical ideal of kingship is spelled out. And then we're going to move forward to the text that Andrew read earlier on, 1 Samuel 8, where we find a prophetic warning of how kings and magistrates often stray from God's revealed design and begin to operate according to a different principle. Not lex rex, but the other way around. Rex lex. The king is law, placing themselves above the law of the Lord. In one sense, this is the purpose of the book of Kings. One reason it's been preserved in Holy Scripture, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings show us what happens when civil magistrates ignore the law of the Lord. And when our magistrates exceed the boundaries of rightful authority and they put themselves in God's place as the righteous lawgiver. And as we're going to see in the course of this sermon series and the stories of the kings, this part of the Old Testament paints a sobering picture of rebellious men who usurp the authority of our God. And not only of the kings themselves, but also it gives us a picture of rebellious nations that forsake the Lord. And that instead of relying on the Lord, they rely instead on these wicked and rebellious men and their worldly schemes. But on a more profound level, the abysmal failure of Israel's monarchy sets the scene for the arrival of Israel's greatest king. And it causes us as the readers of these books to long for the kingdom to come in all of its fullness. I hope that that's that's what this sermon series will do for you, that it will cause you to long for God's kingdom to be consummated on this earth because Jesus is the only perfect king the world has ever known. And he is the one of whom Isaiah said that of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Praise God for that. Uh, We're we're not uh, chained forever to the kingdoms of this world. We have a, a king and his kingdom will increase and there will be no end of it. And so that's where we're heading in the introduction this morning. A text in Deuteronomy 17, in which we discover the principle of lex rex, the fact that God law, God's law is over the king, and then a second text, 1 Samuel 8, in which we're warned about the opposite danger, rex lex, magistrates who wrongly and foolishly think they are above the law. And so with that introduction, let's open our Bibles, let's turn to the Torah, to the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to read a few verses from Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, and we will read verses 14 to 20. Remind you as I read that this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say... I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt 
in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, there are, are a number of principles here in Deuteronomy 17 that help us better understand God's good and gracious design for civil authority. The first of these principles is the fact that God's law does not absolutely require the institution of monarchy. Those of you who have studied civics or political science, you'll know there are a number of different forms that civil government can take. There's absolute dictatorship or absolute monarchy. There's constitutional monarchy. That's our form of government here in Canada. We are a constitutional monarchy. There is republicanism. That's the form of government of the United States of America and Cromwell's England. There's aristocracy. There's democracy and so on and so forth. Civil government can take a variety of different forms. Although the principle of kingship runs all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there was indeed a long period of Israel's history in which Israel had no king and in which God's law did not require a king to rule over the people. Look with me again at verse 14 of the text. It says there, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Deuteronomy, as you may know, it was written near the end of Israel's 40 years of wilderness wandering. This is the second statement of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. The second statement of the law was a second uh, or a restatement of the law given for the new generation that was about to enter the promised land. Forty years before this chapter was written, God had raised up Moses to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt and to guide them through the wilderness. And now Moses is about to be replaced by Joshua. But as we know, neither Moses nor Joshua were kings. They were not leaders of a dynastic monarchy. These men were like judges and prophets. They were leaders that God had chosen and God had empowered them to oversee the theocracy of Israel and to communicate his laws to the people and to judge their disputes and from time to time to lead them into battle. And so it's very interesting, I think, that several centuries before Israel's monarchy actually begins with the anointing of King Saul, God is already in the book of Deuteronomy in In Torah, he has already revealed the rules for these future kings. Deuteronomy 17, this is anticipating the institution of kingship without actually commanding it. Notice here in verse 14, it is not God, 
It's not God himself who is commanding the people to install a king. It's the people who make the request. It's the people here who say, I will set a king over me like the nations who are around me. Here in Deuteronomy, God anticipates the institution without actually requiring it. And in fact, this this theme of kingship is one that permeates the entire storyline of the Bible. The book of Genesis, the account of creation, Adam is portrayed as a kingly figure. He's God's image bearer. He's given the command to exercise dominion. He is to function as God's vice regent over creation. And then we enter the time of the patriarchs. We see the theme of kingship once again. God promises Abram that kings will come from his physical lineage. You can read that, Genesis 17, verse 6. God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 49, we, we have further revelation of the kingship. This is Jacob's prophetic blessing over his 12 sons, and he, he says in that blessing that the kings are going to come from the descendants of one tribe, from the tribe of Judah. So Genesis 49, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. We move forward into the historical books of the Old Testament. Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and we see the partial fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and to Judah. There's now in this part of the Old Testament, we have the kingship of David. We have The covenant that God makes with David that he will establish his dynasty and his house forever. And that, of course, is the Davidic covenant. You can read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And eventually when the monarchy collapses in Judah, the Jews are sent into exile. God raises up prophets and they don't stop talking about kingship. Now the prophets are talking about a future king, talking about one who will sit on David's throne, talking about a restored kingdom. These prophecies ultimately are pointing forward in time towards the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus actually does arrive on the scene of history, what was his message? The first words out of his mouth are words about a kingdom. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, if I am casting out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom has come to you. The kingdom has come to you. And by the time we arrive at Revelation, the very last chapter in the Bible, there is the consummation of this kingdom. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. The king himself is ruling and reigning on a restored earth, set free from the curse of sin and the fall. And so as you can see, kingship is a pivotal theme in the Bible. I would argue that kingship is probably the most important theme in the Bible. If you're going to say, what is the Bible about? The Bible is about a kingdom. The Bible is about a kingdom. That's what what it is. And it's about the coming of the king. Although the book of Deuteronomy does not actually command or require the institution of monarchy, it does anticipate the kingdom's arrival, and the development of this kingdom. And in doing this, it provides rules that will regulate the institution. God's law allows for kings without commanding them. That's the first thing to notice in Deuteronomy 17. Number two, the second principle here has to do with the selection and the installation of these earthly kings. 
And this is the instruction we find in verse 15 of our text. It says this, it says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now friends, one thing to notice as you're reading through the Old Testament, as you're studying the Bible carefully, is to note that kings are always installed in two distinct steps. There are two steps in the installation of the king. There is, first of all, God's choice in selecting the king. And then there is, secondly, the people's choice in consenting to be ruled. Those are the two steps in kingship. Deuteronomy 17 stipulates the kings are chosen by God, but that they are to be installed by the people. And in the biblical context, how did God indicate his choice of a king? Well, he sent a prophet. And kings were always announced by the word of a prophet, and then through the anointing with oil, the oil symbolizing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the pattern that you observe in the Old Testament. Samuel, the prophet, he anoints Saul. Then later on, he anoints David. And Nathan anoints Solomon, and so on and so forth, down throughout Israel's history. We come to the New Testament and to the kingship of Jesus Christ. And what do we see? We see the same pattern. Continues through the ministry of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. This, by the way, was the main significance of Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism was a public declaration that the king had arrived. And whereas Old Testament kings were anointed with oil as a symbol of the Spirit's empowerment, the Spirit is present at Jesus' baptism in the form of a dove, and we hear the Father's voice. He is verbally announcing that the king has arrived. He says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All throughout the Bible, God indicates his choice of kings through the word of a prophet, through the anointing with oil, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But if you read the Bible carefully, you will notice that it wasn't the prophet's anointing of the man that made him king. Read the story of Samuel, Saul's anointing, for example. You will see that Saul was anointed in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel but that Saul doesn't actually become the king until the next chapter. He's anointed in chapter 10. He doesn't become the king until chapter 11. So we read in 1 Samuel eleven fifteen, all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. There Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And so in the case of King Saul, God indicates his choice of the king through the ministry of the prophet Samuel, but it is the people of Israel who confirm the choice. And they consent to be ruled, and they make Saul into their king. We see the same two-step pattern, not only in Saul's kingship, but in David's kingship. Do you guys know when David was anointed? (laughs) He was anointed by Samuel while Saul was still sitting On the throne of Israel, many, many years would pass before Saul died in battle and before David actually becomes the king in Israel. The prophetic anointing of David, and you can can trace the timeline yourself in the book of Samuel, the prophetic anointing happens in 1 Samuel 16. 
But the actual coronation of David doesn't take place until 2 Samuel chapter 1. We read that the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And because uh, at that period of time, the northern tribes of Israel were still loyal to Saul and to this other king named Ishbosheth, it's not until 2 Samuel 5 that David becomes king over all the rest of the tribes. And it says there that the elders of Israel, that are the northern tribes, came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So David is anointed three times, once by Samuel, once by the men of Judah, and then a third time by the rest of the tribes. And so in the Old Testament, you will notice kings are chosen by God, but kings always govern by consent of the people. I'm going to say that again. This is easy to miss as you read through the Bible. This is so important. Chosen by God, but governed by consent of the people. We have a word for that in civics. It's called limited government. Limited kingship. Limited civil authority. This is government by consent of the governed. And by the way, that is one of the principles that comes forth in Magna Carta and in Lex Rex. And where does it come from? The book of Deuteronomy. From the law of the Lord. It's not the barons of England who thought it up. It's not Samuel Rutherford that thought it up. This is God who instituted and who designed government to operate this way. You'll notice as you read through the story of David, even after David was anointed by the prophet Samuel, David himself still recognizes that Saul is Israel's legitimate king. That's why on the two occasions when David had an opportunity to kill Saul, he doesn't do it because David understands Saul is still the Lord's anointed. Saul is governing by consent of the people. That's why he doesn't kill him. He's governing by consent of the people, even though by that time Saul had lost the favor of the Lord. And so the point I want you to recognize here is that Old Testament kingship happens in two phases. There is God's choice in anointing the man through a prophet, and then there is the consent of the people to be ruled by that man. God chooses, but the people make him the king. And as we study through the book of Kings, we are going to see that many of Israel's kings, and especially the kings in the northern part of the kingdom, ruled by consent of the people, but not by the choice of God. They ruled by the consent of the people, but not by the choice of God. That is the main reason, by the way, why God's judgment falls on the northern kingdom. They are consenting to be governed by evil men who have not been Chosen by God. Now this is an interesting point to consider. I hear many Christians today, modern Christians, saying this. We, we need to submit unreservedly to whatever political leadership we presently have. Why? Because those are the ones that God has chosen. Have you heard people talk like that? All the time. We, we need to unreservedly Submit to whatever political leadership we presently have. Why? Because they're the ones that God chose. Now friends, while it is certainly true that our God is sovereign, 
He is meticulously sovereign. He is utterly sovereign over all things. We ought not delude ourselves into thinking that God is pleased with nations that appoint wicked men into political office. That God smiles down upon a nation when that nation consents to be ruled by magistrates who embody not the spirit of God's law, but the spirit of Antichrist. They do not submit to the law of the Lord. The principle of God's law, the principle of Deuteronomy 17, is that God's people consent to be governed not just by any man, not just by somebody who has a pulse. They consent to be governed by the right kind of man. The right kind of man. The man that God Himself chooses. Friends, even though we no longer have prophets anointing kings with oil as in ancient Israel, we do still have the Word of God, do we not? We do have the Word of God, which gives us the principles, the Westminster Confession says, the general equity of the law of God that still applies today and that still guides political choices in modern times. Hear this, Christian brethren, it is not... A morally neutral event when you step into the ballot box on election day and when you consent to be ruled by a wicked despot who hates the Lord. It is not a morally neutral thing. When you cast your vote for a wicked despot who refuses to submit to the precepts of God's word and law. Your choice in the ballot box is a moral issue. Your choice in the ballot box, Christian, is a spiritual issue. And before you tick the box, you best prayerfully and carefully inform yourself. How? By listening to the media? No. By going to the Word of God. By looking to the Word of God and to see what kind of a man, what kind of a man is it that God would choose to govern our nation? When you cast your vote for wicked men, wicked Jezebels who show contempt for God's moral law, contempt for the church of Christ, contempt for the liberties that we enjoy, contempt for our constitution and charter, you violate God's design for civil authority. It is not a neutral matter of personal choice and personal preference. It is not like going to get ice cream. It doesn't matter which flavor you choose. It is a grievous sin to elect wicked men into office. It is a grievous sin. And when evil nations consent to be governed by wicked men and women, we ought not to be surprised when God's judgment comes down upon us. Just as it did in ancient Israel, God's judgment descends rapidly upon wicked nations that appoint and consent to be ruled by wicked men and women. And so let us not elect wicked people into office and then soothe our conscience by saying, well, it was God's choice. It was God's choice. These wicked despots rule with God's blessing. God's sovereignty, Christian brother or sister, is not an excuse for human foolishness and sin. You understand that? God is meticulously sovereign, but His sovereignty over all things is not an excuse for your foolishness and for my foolishness. And when we sow the wind, we end up reaping the whirlwind. We're seeing it right now in our own nation. We've sown the wind. 
we are reaping the whirlwind. We are getting exactly what we asked for. We are getting exactly what we deserve. Deuteronomy 17 shows us Old Testament kings ruled by consent of the people. We must distinguish then between God's choice and man's consent. When Israel consented to be ruled by the men God had chosen, there was blessing upon the nation. There was prosperity in the nation. When they consented to be ruled by wicked despots, there was suffering in the nation. There was injustice in the nation. There was judgment upon the nation. And so the Lord indicates here in his law, verses 15 to 17, the kind of man who is suitable to exercise the office of a king. The Bible does not leave us in the dark on these matters. This is not neutral. One from among your brothers you shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Friends, we've got to understand as we're reading through the law of the Lord, there are some principles, the general equity of the law that can be applied to any nation, including to this nation. There are principles of the law of the Lord that apply to this nation called Canada, but in other senses, the principles in Torah are unique to Israel. Because in some senses, they are linked specifically to the promises that God makes to Abraham. Because God made a covenant with Abraham and later on with David. Because God promised that kings would come from his loins. God chose Judah as the royal tribe. There were certain boundaries that governed kingship in Israel. And so beginning with David and the Davidic covenant, the kings of Israel could not just come from any tribe. They had to come from the tribe of Judah and from the house of David. It was rooted in God's covenant. Deuteronomy, because of the covenant with Abraham, stipulates the king must not be a foreigner. He must be a member of the covenant community. The king of Israel must be a descendant of Abraham. The king must be a worshiper of the Lord God and not a worshiper of idols. He's not to be a pagan, in other words. Now, as we work our way through the books of First and Second Kings, we're going to see how this principle is violated time and time again. And the kings of Israel... Instead of leading the people in the ways of God, they lead them into the ways of idolatry and paganism and sin. These verses tell us Israel's monarchs were to be men who relied on the Lord and not men who relied on money and power and military strength. And Andrew read this in the call to worship, Psalm chapter 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The Lord, you see, understood the seductive allure of political power. God knows how power can corrupt even the best of men. You can see it right in the Bible. Look at King Saul, the way that Saul was corrupted by his own sinful pride and his envy of David. How, how, how Solomon was corrupted by his relentless pursuit of power and money. Here in Deuteronomy, God warns kings should not enter into marriage alliances with foreign 
power. Solomon's reign, we see a king who does exactly what God forbids. God says in in his law, don't amass horses and chariots. What does Solomon do? He amasses horses and chariots. God says here in Deuteronomy 17, don't take many wives. Don't make power alliances with the nations. What does Solomon do? Solomon takes 900 of them. He allies himself through marriage with, with all the pagan nations around him. God says in his law, don't hoard large amounts of silver and gold. What does Solomon do? He, he hoards it. He builds his whole kingdom on it. Power corrupts, as the old saying goes, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, we come then to the final principle here in Deuteronomy 17. This is the principle of lex rex. The fact that God's law stands over and above the king and that kings and magistrates are subject to the rule of law. I know a few politicians that need to be reminded of that. That magistrates are subject to the rule of law. This is really the biblical foundation for limited government. The facts that kings were never intended in God's plan to be dictators. They were never supposed to be absolute dictators. They weren't supposed to be men like King John. They weren't supposed to be men like King Charles. Godly kings were men under authority. They were men who recognized the supremacy of God's law. Look again with me at verses 18 to 20. Verse 18, it says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Now friends, you probably know the kings of ancient Israel lived before the invention of the printing press. They couldn't uh, hop on Amazon and pick up a copy of, of Torah. And so one of the requirements God places upon each one of the kings is that they must make a handwritten copy of the law. Isn't that amazing? You are to make your own handwritten copy of the law of God and to do so in the presence of the priests with the approval of the priests. Every king in Israel upon taking his office was to write out the law of the Lord which was the word of God to the nation was also the constitution of that nation. And not only were these kings to copy the scriptures out by hand verse 19 says they are to keep the scripture with them. They're to have it close at hand. They're, they're to read from it all the days of their life. To copy the Bible, to keep the Bible close at hand, to read from the Bible every day. God's law for the king. Read it, internalize it, memorize it every day so that the leader of Israel would be the embodiment of the man described for us in Psalm chapter 1. And you know that psalm. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scorner, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law doth he meditate day and night. Do you know that Psalm 1 and 2 
That's the introduction of the Psalter. They are both primarily geared towards kings. Psalm 1, what a king should be. A king should be a man of the word. Psalm 2, the king uh, prefiguring Christ is to rule over the the nations as God's vice-regent on earth. Can you imagine how, how blessed a nation would be to have a king like that? Can you imagine how blessed a nation would be if we would keep the general equity of God's law in this regard? Kings and magistrates that love the Word of God, that read the Word of God, that meditate on the Word of God, that keep it close at hand. Kings that govern in accordance with the truth and light of God's Word. Brethren, if God's Word and God's law, the general equity of the law, if these things were at the center of our civic and national life as God designed them to be, can you imagine how different our nation would be? We would not be in the mess we're in today. This would be a different place. Some of you here are a bit older than me. And maybe some of you can remember back to uh, 1983. I was just a few months old at the beginning of 1983. But in 1983, President Ronald Reagan made a presidential declaration that 1983 was the year of the Bible. I, uh, I looked it up this week and I read it and I was, I was amazed by it. <laughs> I'm just going to read, this isn't Canadian, this is American. I just want to read you a couple paragraphs from President Reagan's presidential proclamation. This was 40 years ago, four decades ago. President Reagan said, Of the many influences that have shaped the United States of America into the distinctive nation and people it is, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring than the Bible. Deep religious beliefs stemming from the Old and New Testaments of the Bible inspired many of the early settlers of our country, providing them with the strength, character, convictions, and faith necessary to withstand great hardship and danger in this new rugged land. These shared beliefs helped to forge a sense of common purpose among the widely dispersed colonies, a sense of community that laid the foundation for the spirit of nationhood that was to develop in later decades. The Bible and its teachings helped form the basis for the Founding Fathers' abiding belief in the inalienable rights of the individual, rights which they found implicit in the Bible's teaching, of the inherent worth and dignity of every man. The same sense of man patterned the convictions of those who framed the English system of law inherited by our own nation. He tips his hat to England. as well as the ideals set forth in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution. For centuries, the Bible's emphasis on compassion, love for neighbor, has inspired institutional and governmental expressions of benevolent outreach, such as private charity. Private charity. The establishment of schools and hospitals and the abolition of slavery. And he goes on for two more paragraphs before saying, Now therefore I, Ronald Reagan, President of the United States of America, in recognition of the contributions and influence of the Bible on our Republican people, do hereby proclaim 1983 the year of the Bible in the United States. I encourage all citizens, each in his or her own way, to re-examine and rediscover 
its priceless and timeless message. I don't know about you, friends. Can you imagine any, any politician saying that today? <laughs> In any Western nation? It's remarkable. That was 40 years ago. Here in our own beloved nation of Canada, where are we today? Well, we still have the Bible inscribed in the stone of our federal parliament buildings when you're allowed to go see it. They keep the citizens away from the parliament now. It's inscribed in the stone of the federal parliament. Sadly, it's no longer inscribed in the mind and the heart of the people. It's in stone, but it's not in the mind and the heart of the leadership. And so what do we have today in Canada? This is what we have. We have a government that hates God, a government that insults the Lord God, that violates His law and His word at every turn. In every imaginable way, this is a nation that kills babies in their mother's womb. This is a nation that now euthanizes the sick and the vulnerable and the mentally ill. This is a nation that tramples upon conscience rights. This is a nation that celebrates sodomy on the streets of our city. This is a nation that, that suppresses peaceful protest in our capital. A nation that silences and vilifies righteous men when they speak for truth. Instead of promoting the word of God, instead of submitting to the timeless precepts it contains, the present government of Canada seems to be on course to declare the Bible hate speech. And if you're not aware of it, they have already taken steps to do so. As of this year, the beginning of this year, 2022, it is not the year of the Bible in Canada. It is not the year of the Bible in Canada. This this year, thanks in large measure to the cowardice of our elected officials, it is now a criminal offense in Canada to use the principles outlined in the Bible to counsel men and women who want to be delivered from sexual sin and unnatural sexual desire. And if you try to do it, they, they have threatened us with five years in prison. Up to five years in prison. That is the criminalizing of our faith. Right here in Canada, it has already begun. We've come a long way from the days of Ronald Reagan. We've come a long way from the year of the Bible. And I don't think we've hit the bottom yet. I hate to tell you that. I don't think that we've, we've hit the bottom. And as we make our way through the book of Kings in the months to come, we are going to see what happens to nations who act this way? What happens to nations that trample upon the Bible and the law of the Lord? It's not good. It doesn't bode well for the future of this nation. But we are also going to see through the story of King Josiah and others what can happen when the Bible is rediscovered. And that can happen too after Decades or centuries of neglect, the Bible can be rediscovered and put back into its rightful place and God can bring reformation to wayward nations. We're going to see that in the book of Kings. Brothers and sisters, I painted a pretty bleak picture this morning, but I want to encourage you, there is hope for Canada. It's not hopeless for this nation. We can't give up praying for this nation. 
We can't give up evangelizing the people of this nation. We can't give up on our culture. We must pray for and work for reformation in this land. I will never give up on this nation. The kings of ancient Israel were to read, copy, meditate upon the law of God. The reason for that wasn't simply that they would grow in their knowledge of what the Bible said, but that they would learn to fear the Lord. That's what it says here. They would learn to fear the Lord. They would be guarded from the corrupting sin of pride. What does the Bible say? It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How is it that leaders have wisdom to govern? Through the fear of the Lord. We want leaders who fear the Lord and who govern our nation with wisdom. They must be men of the book. They must be. Notice also, Deuteronomy 17, the king was to copy God's law in the presence of the priests. In the presence of the priests. In the Old Testament, we're going to see this. Contrary to popular belief, there was indeed church-state separation in the Old Testament. And in the way that God administered ancient Israel. In the Old Testament, the office of the priest is distinct from the office of the king. And the king is not permitted in the Old Testament to fulfill the office of a priest. Many Christians today assume that because ancient Israel was a theocracy, because it was a nation under God's law, that there was no separation of church and state in ancient Israel. That is a myth. It's simply not true. When modern people like us throw around that phrase, separation of church and state, what do we mean by that? Well, here's what we often mean by that. We mean the separation of religion from state. That's what's meant by it. When people say separation of church and state, they mean separation of religion from state. Get this, they're not the same thing. Those are not the same things. Our statement of faith here at Rosedale Baptist and so the long-standing position of Baptists affirming the separation of church and state, our statement of faith does not affirm the separation of state from religion. That is not in our church's statement of faith. And somehow, we modern Christians, we have convinced ourselves that religion has no place in the sphere of civil government. We've somehow convinced ourselves of that. It is false. It is foolish. It is impossible. And here's why it's impossible. Because if the laws of a nation are not shaped according to the principles of God's word and law, what will they be shaped by? If they're not being shaped by the Bible, what are they going to be shaped by? They're going to be shaped by the principles of some other moral and religious system. If we choose to reject the Bible as the basis for civil authority and jurisprudence in this nation, we create a vacuum, and that vacuum will be filled by something. It will be filled by a false religion. It will be filled by a false ideology. And here in our own nation, it is happening before our eyes. And it's been happening for a long time now. Our leaders have long ago rejected biblical Christianity as the basis for our civic and national life, and they are turning now, they are turning aside to false pagan ideologies. What are they? What are the ideologies that control our nation today? Marxism, wokeism, secular humanism, globalism, 
These are not neutral ideologies. I hope you understand that. These are not neutral. These are counterfeit religions. Do you understand that? This is not neutral. These are counterfeit alternative religions. And in our own day, the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God is being replaced by the all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent state. That's what happens when you kick God out, creates a vacuum, and something fills the vacuum. The state takes the place of God. It's one of the worst forms of idolatry, one of the most repressive forms of idolatry. It will destroy our nation. And God's law is being replaced here in Canada by human philosophy, human wisdom, climate worship, globalism, utopianism. What we are experiencing in Western society, this is not a shift. And this is what they, will, they want to tell you, that we're shifting away from the superstition of Christianity to neutrality. We're making progress. We're getting away from religion. We become, we're becoming neutral. That's a lie. That is a big lie. This is not a shift to neutrality. This is a shift from true religion to false religion. That's what it is. It's a usurping of the true religion. And we have not gotten rid of the priests here in Canada. The priests are still with us. They're just not the same ones as we had before. The priests in Canada today, they are no longer the Protestant clergy. They are the public school teachers. They are the Marxist academics filling up our universities and institutions. These are the priests of Canada. These are the guardians of your new state religion, and they are right now engaging in a very aggressive campaign of proselytism. They are proselytizing their religion, and they are doing so through all of our institutions, and not the least of which is the public school system, the universities. In the Old Testament, we see kings of Israel were not to be free from the influence of the Levites. They were to copy God's law in the presence of the Levites. The priests and the prophets were there in that society to instruct the king in the way of righteousness and to call him to repentance when he strayed from it and to keep him accountable to the precepts of the law. The evangelical church today has embraced a very foolish, very dangerous and unbiblical idea. And it's this notion that the clergy need to, to, to stay out of politics. There are many people who believe that, that what I'm doing today is wrong. The clergy needs to stay out of politics. They ought never to speak about political issues from the pulpit. They ought never to attempt to influence the affairs of state with the truth of God's word. We, we bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And I'm not exactly how we've got here, but the evangelical church today in Canada exerts almost no influence on Canadian society. You realize that? We, the, gay, the gay and lesbian population is about 2%, 1 or 2% of the population. They have transformed our culture. And the evangelicals in Canada are like 10% of the population. We have, all, we have no influence on the culture. And we're plagued with this false idea that we, we need to withdraw from the civil realm, that the civil realm needs to be religiously and morally neutral. We want to be governed by natural law. And not by God's law. 
So the church in Canada has given up. We have given up our efforts to shape national life. We have retreated into this comfortable, impotent form of pietism. And what's the result of that? Well, we have left the wolves to catechize the nation. The wolves are catechizing the nation. They're doing it very, very well. Extremely well. Especially in these dark, sinful days, we pastors, we Christians generally, we must be reminding our leaders and our people of this nation what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about righteous government? And we pray for their salvation. Of course we do. We pray for our leaders. We we pray for the repentance of our nation as, as a whole, but we do more than that. We need to be in these days a continual goad in their side, calling them back to the precepts of the Bible, constantly reminding the magistrate of their duties under God. Think of Samuel and King Saul. Think of Nathan and King David. Think of Elijah and King Ahab. Think of John the Baptist and King Herod. Think of John Knox and Mary Queen of Scots. Think of John Calvin and the Genevan magistrates. Our political leaders must not be allowed to think that they are above the law. We cannot let them believe that they are above God's law. And this is where we have a role to play as God's people. We are, we are salt and light in this nation. Preservative in this nation. And so this is not the time for the Canadian church to wave the white flag and to withdraw from the culture wars and the civic sphere, this of any times is a time to engage. To engage it. To speak the truth into the darkness. If our magistrates won't read the Bible for themselves, and I think most of them don't have a clue what the Bible even says, never mind to read it for themselves. If they won't read it for themselves, then let's tell them what it says. Let's speak the truth. And tell them what it says and remind them of what their duties are before God. Because as soon as a king and a magistrate departs from the principles of the Bible and they put themselves into God's rightful place, what results from that? Well, the the law spells it out here in verse 20. It says, their hearts will be lifted up in pride. They begin to violate the principle of lex rex. They begin to think that they are above the law. They begin to act as though they're above the law. They begin to feel as though they are superior to their fellow citizens. It says that in verse 20, that their heart is not exalted above their brothers. That when people depart from the law of the Lord, they begin to abuse their authority. They begin to feel that they are superior to everybody else. They begin to operate according to the principles of rules for thee, but not for me. We saw that over and over again in the COVID fiasco. And ultimately, nations that depart from God's law will not be nations that prosper and experience blessing. All the time these days, we hear about social justice and how progressive we are becoming. But hear this, a nation that departs from the law of God will be a nation that manifests the most depraved forms of injustice. The most depraved forms of injustice. This is a nation that has no basis for human rights, a nation that treats the citizens as slaves, a nation that is ripe for God's judgment to fall. 
And so having seen the principles for righteous government in Deuteronomy 17, we, we turn secondly to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 8, Andrew read that at the beginning of the service. I'm not going to read it again. I promise you the second part is shorter than the first. But in many ways, 1 Samuel 8 is the mere reflection of Deuteronomy 17. And and that's why I want to look at these texts together. Deuteronomy 17 anticipates the future monarchy in Israel, outlines the duties and the limitation of godly kings. But in 1 Samuel 8, we get a far different picture of kingship from the prophet Samuel. This is not the humble and godly king that's described in Deuteronomy 17. This is a proud, abusive king that was found in all of the other pagan nations and societies of that time. 1 Samuel 8 was written on the cusp of major political change in the nation of Israel. It's a chapter that marks the transition point between the judges and the kings. Beginning with Moses and Joshua, continuing to the time of Eli and Samuel, Israel functioned basically as a tribal society. There were 12 tribes. They they were associated under the covenant of law and they were governed by tribal warlords that the Bible calls judges. A few years ago here at Rosedale, I preached a, a sermon series through the entire book of Judges. We saw the problems that Israel experienced during that period of time. The people would depart from the law of God. God would bring judgment upon them. The nation would cry out for deliverance. God would raise up a judge to deliver, deliver them. Repeat. Over and over again. That was the cycle of apostasy and mercy. It says in the final chapters of Israel, it keeps saying that there was no king in Israel. And that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now there were indeed a number of judges who gave leadership to Israel in that time. Some of them were good, a few of them. Some of them were really bad. And most of them were an unhappy mixture of both. But the final judge that God provides for Israel is this man Samuel. And he is a very good and righteous judge. Samuel loves the word of God. Samuel leads the people in the way of righteousness. And by the time we arrive in 1 Samuel 8, what we find is an elderly Samuel. He is nearing the end of his ministry as judge. His sons are not godly men. They they will not carry on in his legacy. And with Samuel nearing retirement, the elders of Israel understandably call a meeting with the old judge. And they inform Samuel that they are ready for change. They say it's time for a change in the government of this nation. It's not working. They see the problems with his son. They don't want his sons to be their leaders. They say, we want a king to rule over us. We want want a dynastic monarchy to bring stability to the nation. And this was a decisive moment in Israel's history. This was the moment Deuteronomy 17 was anticipating. The moment when Israel would ask for a king. And we might expect that since Deuteronomy 17 talked about kingship, that Samuel would be excited about this. That Samuel would be overjoyed. Finally, at last, the people want a king. But instead, Samuel is immensely displeased with their request, and God is also displeased. I don't know about you, I've always found this to be something of a confusing text. Because we've got Deuteronomy 17, it seems fairly positive towards the institution of kingship. And now we come to 1 Samuel 8, and everything's negative. 
There's, there's nothing good to be said about the institution of, of kingship. But a close examination of the chapter reveals that the problem isn't with kingship itself. It's not a problem with monarchy. The problem that Samuel is putting his finger on is a problem with the heart and the motivations of the people in Israel. It's not a problem with wanting a king. It's the kind of king that they wanted. Because in verse 4 it says, The elders of Israel gathered together and come to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. And here it is. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. And then we skip down to verse 19 and we read that the people refuse to obey the warning of Samuel. They say, no Samuel, there will be a king to rule over us that we may be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so this is the reason why Samuel was so upset by their request. The people wanted a king like the other nations around them. They were not looking for the kind of king described in Deuteronomy 17. They wanted the kind of king that they saw in the world. They were looking at the other nations. They weren't looking to God's law. And they said, we want an absolute king. We don't want a king who will operate according to the principle of Lex Rex. We want a a king who will put himself in the place of God. Who will act as God for us and Go out and fight our battles for us and protect us and we'll be the voice of law and truth. So while it was not wrong for the people to desire a change in governance and to desire a ruler who would bring more stability and cohesion to the nations, the problem was their motive. They wanted a king so that they could fit in. By the way, guys, that isn't a unique problem to ancient Israel. How many of us sometimes say, man, I wish I could fit in. Wouldn't it be nice to fit in with the rest of the culture? We wouldn't stand out. We wouldn't be opposed. How nice it would be just to fit in. That's the problem. It was a desire to be like the nations that displeased the Lord. This desire to fit in, it actually violates the whole spirit of the Torah. Why did God choose Israel in the first place? So that they'd be a nation that would fit in? It violates the entire spirit of Torah. God elected Israel not so that they would fit in, but so that they would be distinct. It's the whole point. Israel is a distinct nation. They are peculiar people. Same thing as the church today. We are distinct from the world. We're not like the world. That's the point. (laughs) That's God's design. Samuel was no dummy. Samuel understands with clarity what they're asking for. This is not limited kingship. They want absolute kingship. They want to be like all the pagan nations. And so Samuel warns the people in this chapter, if they will not accept the biblical principle of lex rex, a king who will humble himself under the law of the Lord, they will be forced to live with the horrendous consequences of rex lex. A king will act as though he is above the law. A king who will exalt himself and act as God's substitute. And in this last ditch effort to protect the people from themselves, Solomon spells out what it will mean to be governed by such an absolute tyrant. 
Deuteronomy 17, God says kings are not to be collectors of horses and chariots. Here in 1 Samuel 8, the king, we're warned, will be consumed with his own military might. This king will conscript the best young men in the nations to fight in his army and to fulfill his own vision for conquest. There's not going to be conscientious objection in Israel. There will not be distinction between a just and an unjust war. This is a king who will force the young men of the nation to fight for any and every cause that he deems to be right. In this regard, we might think about the young men in Nazi Germany conscripted into the military and forced to fight for an evil and immoral regime. And this is what Samuel is warning the people about. But not only... Will the king use their sons as mortar for the bricks of his empire? He will institute a form of unbiblical slavery in the homeland. He will institute forced labor in in which even more of their children will be conscripted into his service. They will be farmers. They will be blacksmiths. They will be bakers. They will be perfumers in the service of the king. The nation consents to be governed by this type of a ruler. Solomon warns them, it will be their children who will pay the price. It will be their grandchildren who will pay their price. These children and grandchildren will be sacrificed on the altar of progress and they will become slaves. Right back in Egypt. Here we are in the promised land. We're right back in Egypt. In God's law, we see a just form of taxation called the tithe. Samuel warns the people, if you accept this type of a king, there will be an extreme financial price. Because this king will will act like the other kings. He will levy taxes that are illegal. He will levy illegal tax above the legal tithe and he will seek to fill his treasury with your hard-earned money and to beautify his palace with your hard-earned money and to fund his ungodly exploits in war. And he will do it through your money. And finally, Solomon warns the people in verse 18, In that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You, 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 the king, your king, who you have chosen. The Lord will not answer you. During the time of the judges, where did oppression come from? It came from the outside. At least it was coming from the other pagan nations. Samuel now warns the people, if you consent to be ruled by this kind of a man, you will experience that same kind of oppression, but there will be a difference because now the oppression is going to come from within. It's going to come from inside of the nation. And Samuel does his best to dissuade them and to reason with them, but his pleas fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts. In verse 19, they're they're committed to, They're committed to their course. The the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. They say, no. No, there there will be a king over us that that we may be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight in our battles. How sad. How, How tragic. And because kings govern by consent of the people, the Lord grants their request. Because kings govern by consent of the people, the Lord grants their request. He gives them what they want. Do you understand this, friends? That sometimes the most terrifying form of judgment is when God gives us what we ask for. 
He gives them what they want. And in the months to come, as we study through the book of Kings, we're going to see how all of Samuel's warnings come true in Israel's history. And the nation plunges headlong into a state of political tyranny, civil war, gross idolatry, and ultimately into 70 years of exile. They lose the kingdom. The book of Kings is part of the Bible, underscoring the terrible reality of sin, tyranny, wickedness, injustice, and suffering in a fallen world. This is a part of the Bible that will show us the importance of courageous and godly leadership in difficult times. This is a book that will show us why the church must never, ever lose its prophetic voice. This is a book that reminds us how God's judgment falls upon wicked nations that turn their back upon His law. This is a a book that reveals the mercy of God in keeping covenant with disobedient people and bringing reformation even in the darkest and most hopeless of times. And this is a book, most importantly, that reminds us that even the best of earthly kings have clay feet. Even the best of earthly kings are men with clay feet. And in this way, the book of Kings points us beyond the kings of Israel themselves. And it gazes our our vision forward towards the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate king. The one who is king right now. He is right now ruling and reigning from heaven. And one day he will come and consummate his rule and reign on this earth. Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's the good news. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Amen.